Hello, everybody. Before we dive into today's episode, this episode is brought to you by Elite Sweets. Elite Sweets is redefining the way we think about sweets with their Elite Donuts. The Elite Donut is a better-for-you donut that is packed with 13 grams of protein. They're gluten-free, keto-friendly, and contain only one gram of sugar. That's right, guys. I've gotten to know the founders over at Elite Sweets, and they are building something truly special. If you've ever had those late-night cravings or just really want a sweet treat, but you know it's going to ruin your diet, it's going to send you you know, off the edge with carbs and sugar, well, you can try Elite Sweets. Like I said, they're a donut packed with protein, they're keto-friendly, they're gluten-free, and they're low in sugar. If you guys would like to try Elite Sweets, you can get yours today at EliteDonut.com or on Amazon. Both platforms work with the same code, and that code is ShaneWhite30. That'll get you 30% off your order. Today's episode is also brought to you by Routine. Routine has come up with a proprietary product called Morning Routine. Each packet contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. You tear one of these packets up, you dump it into water, shake it up, and you're good to go. It's supposed to help you really recover uh, after after waking up in the morning. Uh, what I didn't know before I met the guys over at Routine is that when you sleep, you lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water. Most of that from expelling vapors, sweating, etc. When you wake up and you grab a cup of coffee, well, you dehydrate yourself even more to start the day. So grab a routine, a morning routine at that to start your day. Routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. You can check them out at yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. All right, everybody. Today, we have Jared Steffs, the CEO. He's the co-founder of Muddy Bites. Muddy Bites is honestly one of the most unique, ingenious snack brands that I've ever had on this podcast. Essentially, uh, they take the bottom of an ice cream cone. So that little piece, the last bite that's filled with chocolate, they found a way to turn that into a packaged good, and they're crushing it. Had a great conversation with Jared. Hope you guys enjoy this one. It was really fun, and we dove into some topics that, honestly, I don't always dive into. So without... Wow, almost butchered that. Without further ado, give it up for Jared. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I am pumped today to have the co-founder of Muddy Bites on the podcast, Jared Steffs. Jared, welcome to the show, man. Hey, good to be here. Um, excited to chat through a few things here. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Um, for anyone listening who doesn't know what Muddy Bites is, would you mind giving everyone just a little bit of a background of you and your brand? Yeah, so we started Muddy Bites kind of a few years ago and really kind of the, the idea of like, hey, nobody's selling the bottom part of a Sunday cone. Why not us? Like, why not give it a shot and see what happens? And so, you know, we kind of took the idea of selling the bottom part of a Sunday cone as a snack inside of a bag so people can finally enjoy the bottom part of a Sunday cone over and over again. Um, and so, you know, we started the idea back in 2018, launched on Kickstarter in 2019 to kind of fund our first production run. 
um, successfully raised in about 16,000. Our goal was 10,000. Um, nice. We hit that within 48 hours. And so that kind of funded our first production run. And really from there, it was like, okay, let's shift to our backers, make sure that, you know, Tyler and I have another co-founder is like, we love the idea, but what do other consumers think? And so Kickstarter for us was not only allowing us to fund that first production run, but also for us to like validate the idea and make sure that other people wanted the bottom part of the cone as well. Um, and so obviously both of those went really, really good. You know, we shipped to backers and we're like, okay, now we've got to launch the online store. And so we launched that in November 4th, 2019. And then really from there, it was just steady month over month growth. And then of course, you know, 2020 in March, COVID came around. It was like, oh no, like nobody knew at the time what COVID was and neither did us. And we had this production facility and a lot of employees, we were a young company are like, you know, what do we do now? And so we actually shut down for three months, just mainly for a cautionary safety measure for, you know, staff in a small facility. And really during that time, it was like, you know, our line store is open order. If you want to support us, we'd love you to. And we still did 25 to 50 K a month, just through organic sales of people willing to support us during our kind of weird timing. Um, And then we opened up in June and really from June, you know, we opened up slowly, get staff in there, making sure that they felt safe, so on and so forth. Um, took us about probably two to three months to catch up on orders that came in during our shutdown period. And then, you know, after that, it was like, you know, full horses to the wall, so to say, and and getting orders back up to gear and really kind of expanding and improving our kind of production capacity to where we can increase production and actually meet demand and not have to worry about production issues. And, And now we're here today, you know, and just wrapping up 2021 to where we're gonna have a really good 2022 coming up. Love it. No, love it. Yeah. You guys came in. Well, you kind of got rolling at a tough time for sure. And I thought one of the things I wanted to start off with, I thought was cool for everyone who's listening, you know, for people that that I've had on here from the CPG industry, I feel like most brands and most products are for lack of better words, you can make, you can test them in your kitchen to some degree. Like we, obviously we both have a connection through RX and like Peter and Jared made those bars in their, you know, and Jared's or Peter's, you know, parents, kitchen and then like was able to like take it out to people in Chicago for you guys that seems like that's not necessarily possible without figuring out how to make it first which seems like almost backwards for like a minimal viable product like you can't just like cut off the bottom of ice cream cones or you know obviously yeah. get into it but it seemed like how did you guys at the beginning like even test it maybe it's just the kickstarter to actually run a full production run yeah, so like it's kind of like with Peter and, and Jared with the RX bar. It's like we kind of made them in our kitchen first. That was really where Tyler. So I run kind of a lot of kind of our branding and marketing and social side of things. And Tyler runs a lot of our operations. So really it was up to like Tyler to figure out, hey, you know, how do we make these at, you know, a really good pace to where we can keep up demand? And so he started in his kitchen, kind of like what RX did. It's like, okay, we made them in our kitchen. Let's try them with friends and family first. Great. It went really good. Now we need to do it like a mass kind of. I don't want to say nationwide, but like, you know, anybody in the U.S. could order and just kind of help us validate the idea. And so really from, from there, it was like, I think three or four of us guys in a very, I think we had 500 square feet during the time of our Kickstarter, just a very small little kind of kitchen. And we literally made these cones and it would take us literally weeks just to fulfill a very tiny amount of orders. Cause it's like, we're trying to figure out how to make these cones at like a great scale to where it's actually makes sense because yeah. nobody can make a waffle cone this small. So it's like, we got to figure out how to do that. Um, and it really took us 
six months to a year to figure out kind of an R and D process of actually trying to do that at a good scale to where it's profitable, but also scalable. And so we went through that kind of measure for about two years, you know, really kind of improving the process. And we got, finally got to the process to where, you know, we developed kind of our own internal processes to really increase production by over 400% to where we are today. Wow. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And like right from the beginning, I mean, it's funny too, because Muddy Bites, in my opinion, seems like a, you know, an indulgence. seems like a, like a, a snack when you like are, are craving ice cream or craving like a sweet. Is that kind of like the angle you guys went down was just like, sometimes you, you know, when you've had an ice cream cone, you love that end, but you don't necessarily want like this full, you know, ice cream cone experience. Was that kind of some of the beginning thoughts? Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much it. It's like, you know, everybody loves a Sunday cone. It's hard to find people that don't love a Sunday cone. And usually, you know, 9.5 out of 10 times when we ask people like, what's your favorite part of a Sunday cone? Everybody would say that bottom part filled with chocolate. We're like, okay, you know, we got an idea here. Let's go yeah. try and do it and see what happens. That's so cool. And then when you guys first, you know, figured it out in the kitchen, where did you guys go test these? Because like, did you just kind of go around? I know you're based in Iowa. Did you guys just go around friends and family and try to get some people to try it? Or did you launch a website or what'd you do first? Um, honestly, like I think Tyler had his parents try it and we had maybe like three friends try it and they're all like, okay, this is really good. And then we're like, all right, let's just launch a Kickstarter and see what happens. Because the nice thing about Kickstarter, right? Is if you don't hate your goal, you don't get the money. You don't really put a bunch of investment into it anyway. So it's kind of like this win-win situation that if, you know, if Kickstarter fails, it fails and, you know, we work on what's next or whatever, but it turned out good. So then from there, it was like, you know, we got, we raised, our goal was 10,000. We just went shy under 1600. So it was like 500 ish backers or orders. So it's like, we had to figure out how to do 500 orders in like a very timely manner of probably 30 to 45 days. Oh, wow. And I don't think we were anywhere close to that. I think we finally fully shipped out all orders in like two to three months. And, and really- that first you know, order, were you guys, did you guys hand do them all or did you guys have the co-man to run something at that point already? No, we did everything by hand. Um, wow. Every little piece of cone, every little piece of chocolate, like everything goes by hand. So it was a super tedious thing. And at that time, our bag size had 30 bites in a bag. So it was like literally making 30 cones, filling 30 cones with chocolate. And like for time's sake, I mean, like one bag would take us, I, I off to my head, like, you know, a minute or whatever it'd say, but like, it just felt like when we're doing 500 orders, each order had, I think five bags at least. So you can just you know, oh, yeah. think of all the cones and all the chocolate we had to do. And I remember sitting in our facility and we're really mixing chocolate and like this thing's not freaking melting. And so I'm sitting here like wondering why isn't this chocolate melting? And we got too high on a temperature to where it just like wasn't mixing properly. So it's like we went on those loops of like, okay, we got to figure out how to properly melt chocolate. We got to figure out how to properly set cones. And so like we went all these hurdles over a really six month period of trying to figure out how to, how to make muddy bites, so to say. And it was quite the, the journey. And, and really with our Kickstarter backers, it was like one of our values is just being transparent of like, hey, you know, nobody's made this cone or this product. You would think it would have been made 10 years ago, but it never was. It's like, we're 20 years old trying to figure out this. Please be patient with us. And, um, you know, 99.9% .9 of backers are like, we totally get it. Like, take your time kind of thing. So it was really, oh, really great. cool to have yeah, it was really cool to kind of create that community kind of brand feel behind it. Yeah, I mean, especially I feel like being transparent is I, you know, that's another thing I learned from RX that 
people people react usually pretty well when you're just open and transparent and you explain what's going on versus you know them not hearing from you and then and then wondering why they haven't gotten their money bites it's interesting too because for for what i'm hearing too do you think if you guys didn't do a kickstarter um you guys would have had to like go through the process of figuring out how to make them as quickly and maybe like would it have could that have potentially been in your mind in the past if you didn't have all these orders waiting to be shipped you just like yeah. trying to figure out if it was even viable do you think that could have potentially been a you know a roadblock that you guys would have stopped altogether with how, how difficult it was to bring the product to life because i always sometimes i wonder like you know diamonds are made under pressure type of thing like you guys had to ship this order out and it was a yeah you know like a hot start maybe that pushed you guys to kind of figure stuff out when you normally wouldn't have yeah honestly that's a great question i've never been asked that and i think you're right like i think the kickstarter almost made like the pressure behind us of like okay we've got 500 orders i don't know the exact number off the top of my head but you know we've got 500 orders we need to fulfill like people literally gave us their hard-earned money for it we got to give them a product that they love and so i think that created a kind of a pressure behind us of like okay let's get out let's see what they think if they don't like it they don't like it you know that's kind of the risk of kickstarter is you you know, put your money out there. And if the product's not good, it's, it is what it is kind of thing. And so, you know, obviously the product that we shipped was really, really good. And we ended up, you know, launching our store and here we are today, but you know, if Kickstarter would have failed, I mean, you know, it probably would have dragged out the process a lot longer of like, okay, Kickstarter failed. Why did that fail? How do we do it again? Do we relaunch? Do we go on Indiegogo instead, or do we, you know, start with farmer markets? I mean, there was definitely doubt in our mind before we launched and obviously our backers were there for us to help bring those doubts away. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely pushed us a lot harder than we probably would have. Yeah, no, definitely. And then it's, it's interesting too, because I've only had a few people on here who have like launched with a Kickstarter. Did you guys, did you guys do a lot of research before that and felt like that was the best way? Or like, you know, even like Peter and Jared, like they launched a website and we're going like CrossFit gym to CrossFit gym, trying to, you know, get distribution that way. Was there a reason yeah. you started with Kickstarter? Um, honestly, the only thing was to really kind of fund first production run. Cause I think for like 19, 20 at a time, basically college kids with like no money, you know, like the typical college kid kind of, kind of story. And so like for us, it was really just kind of an influx of cash more than really anything um you know like i said we probably could have started small like farmers markets or you know launched our website but for us kickstarter really was kind of main two verticals of one give us cash number two um make sure other people wanted the product as well to kind of give us that validation got it yeah no that makes sense okay well love that no it's really cool and, and money bites i was just doing a little research this wasn't your first you know entrepreneurial endeavor was it you've like have you always kind of been someone who's just wants to start stuff and it seems like you've tried a few different things which is pretty cool kind of so like growing up you know i really didn't know what i was gonna do you know most like high school kids it's like what do you do with the rest of your life and i yeah. think even in high school for any high school people listening or whatever it's like you're not really gonna figure out what you do until you just get out there and do something so when i was in college freshman year you know i was just studying business management because with business management you could manage a restaurant you could you know you could do whatever you could do a lot of verticals and so after my freshman year, I was like on the Dean's list, you know, freshman year, not a big deal. thought I was doing good in school, whatever. That summer, I had a construction job, literally working from, you know, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. at night, just long days. It's hard on your body. 
And after a month, I got to the point where we're like, okay, this, this sucks. Like, I don't want to do this stress of my life. And obviously I wasn't studying to do that, but it was like, it painted a picture in my mind of like, I want to try doing something on my own. And so after a month, I quit, started doing a part-time job for a family friend from like 7am to noon. And then all afternoon, it opened up my kind of time to figure out something to do on my own. And so I launched a business called Canio where we sold bracelets, anklets, and necklaces online. It was literally buying, you know, 10, 15 cent bracelets and anklets from Alibaba and throwing them up on a store for 15 bucks. And all of a sudden we're throwing, you know, we invest a little bit of money, obviously, and we're making some really good money. And we're like, oh, wow, like, you know, why am I in school for this? And so went back my sophomore year, uh, first semester, after the first semester, I dropped out. And then, you know, our store was doing, you know, maybe 15, 20 K a month. I mean, oh, we you actually dropped good. out of school when the bracelet business I did. Was, was taken off. I did. And then literally probably a month, two months after I dropped out, like all of our sales just suddenly declined. And like, we're almost in this situation of like, oh God, what did I do with my life? You know, I dropped out of school, the business is failing. Like I was kind of in a low point. Oh, wow. And you know, we couldn't figure out what to do with the, store, with, the, with the store. And I mean, at the time I was maybe 20, 21, you know, whatever, or no, excuse me, like 17, 18 years old. And I knew nothing about Facebook ads, email marketing. Like I was just learning that stuff on the fly. And so eventually we got to the point where like, okay, the store's failing. Let's try and sell it, get some money before, you know, it's too late. We sold it. And then from there, um, you know, hey, was, how did you, how did you sell it? Like, how, like back then, was that when you could like sell through Shopify? Like you like yeah, list- um, Shopify Exchange, and I think yeah, that's still that. a thing today. I don't know if they rebranded or I haven't seen much of it lately, but I know it's still there. Um, but we tried it through Exchange. We tried like Flipla.com. Um, I think even at the time there used to be Shopify forums that we'd post on as well, which now is kind of the Exchange. Um, I mean, we just try all these different websites, whatever. Sure. Eventually, I think we found a girl through Facebook somehow or another, and she bought it. And we're like, okay, sweet. Like first business, we we built out, we sold it. Like sweet, now what? Yeah. And at that time, that was when Ty Lopez had his social media marketing agencies going around, and so we're like, that. okay, like yeah, like let's buy his course, let's see what happens. Tried that for a couple months. Honestly, it just, we made some money, but it was kind of like miserable work. And then from there, I kind of got into web design, started designing websites, building them on Webflow, um, helping local businesses with their SEO. So kind of that stuff and really did that for about two years. And really from that, learned, you know, Facebook ads, email marketing, um, design and conversion rates and all that stuff, which ultimately helped us lead into Muddy Bytes and what we're building here today. Wow. Okay. Very cool. No, it's, it's funny. Like when you were selling your website, I, I actually, me and a buddy started like a clothing brand on Shopify. And it was, I remember that. I remember you trying to like sell it at one point. We never did, but I remember that whole concept. Uh, that's yeah. so funny. It's like a flashback. I totally forgot about. Um, yeah. I think Shopify tried pushing that, like basically another revenue stream for Shopify. So I think they would make like, you know, a 5% cut or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think they pushed that pretty hard for a solid year or two and then realized like, okay, nobody's really selling their stores. And so I think they kind of changed verticals or put on the back burner or whatever. Sure. No, no, no. That's really cool. And it's funny too. I mean, you dropped out of school, you faced adversity, but you figured it out. It seems like ever since then, you've kind of just kept going down that path. Am I right? I mean, it seems like you just yeah. went from one thing to I the mean, other and you never thought about going back. 
Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the whole mentality. And obviously, when I dropped out, you know, I had a girlfriend of, you know, four years or whatever. And so obviously, it wasn't what she wanted me to do. And so like, sure. I even created some like relationship stuff that ultimately worked out like she's my wife now of two and a half years. Um, but you know, it's, it's not easy decisions. But like, kind of my mentality behind all that was like, you know, I'll figure it out. If something goes wrong, I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to make something of it and find a way through it. Actually. And at that age, you know, one of the questions I had someone on here recently that seemed like they were in a similar boat as you, are you someone who, yeah, your mindset's always been like, I'll just figure it out. Like even stuff that I feel like most people get hung up on, um, like consistent income or health yeah. insurance. Like, how do you think about all that stuff at that age? Cause I mean, even, even that age, like right out of, you know, what would have been like right when you were getting out of school. Um, yeah. It's an interesting time to like, you know, you never had health insurance or maybe under your parents or whatever. So is that even, yeah. Something so, yeah. So like even health insurance, like I'm assuming, I think it was nationwide, but at least here in Iowa, it's like, you could be in your, in your parents insurance until you're 26. So like I'm 25 right now. It's so like, that's kind of the discussion now of like, okay, yeah. I got health insurance, like adult stuff. But, you know, when I was 18, 19, you know, whatever, in that age range was like, okay, how do I make money? How do I pay my rent? How do I pay for groceries? Um, you know, my parents didn't help me pay for college. So, and I went to Iowa State University here in Iowa. So I had to figure out how to, you know, pay my tuition and pay for books oh, yeah. and all that stuff. And really like when I was doing web design, it was like some months I could make 5,000 bucks and the next I'd make a thousand. And so that's when I kind of learned on my own of like money management. Okay. I, I made five bucks, 5,000 this month, next month. I don't know what I'm going to make. So I've got to manage that 5,000 now smart and efficiently instead of, you know, go buy in, you know, in college, go buy a bunch of beer or whatever, or spend it on clothing or cars or whatever. So that kind of helped me learn money management early, which ultimately, you know, helped grow into the businesses of like, okay, how do we manage our cash flow and, you know, our books and all that stuff. So it's kind of those things of just learning and figuring out as I go. Yeah, no, I love it. No, it's, it is interesting. Like when you start anything, I think it does kind of push you into just like, you have to figure it out. Right. Cause there's no one else that's going to be there to figure it out. Especially if you don't hire anybody, it's like, yeah. Right. If you don't, if you don't do it or you don't get it done, it doesn't get done. So you just inevitably kind of just figure shit out. Just got to figure it out. Otherwise it's like, you know, if you put 2000 bucks in a business, you don't figure it out. It's like, okay, there went 2000 bucks. Like, you know, 2000 bucks goes a long way when you're 18, 19 and, you know, even 25 years old, it's like, it goes a long ways. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, hundred percent. Well, that's really wild. So yeah, you've tried lots of things and then coming back over to money bites. So that's, this was your first, like you, I mean, doing the bracelet business, that was still, I mean, same concept of like, you're buying inventory, you're having to sell it for a profit. Muddy Bites, though, I mean, it sounds like this is the first real endeavor where you're producing a product where you have like raw ingredients that need yeah. to turn into a finished product, right? Yeah, I mean, like the bracelet business, Kenya, I mean, like, honestly, like a scale of one to tech seriousness of like, okay, we got cash flow, we got inventory. I mean, it was like a two. I mean, it wasn't anything extreme. It wasn't <clears throat> like, you know, we were trying to move a million dollars worth of products. You know, it was just kind of a super low scale of like, okay, five, 10, 15, 20K a month. Whereas Muddy Bites, it's like, we've got employees, we've got cash flow, we've got a ton inventory, we've got, you know, operations, we've got supply chain. It was like, it was almost like we took 30 steps higher just to kind of get to where Muddy Bites has become. And again, it's like, it's not like you go from, 
you know, zero to 5 million in a day, you know, you gradually get there. And so you learn those kind of loops of like, okay, how do I work with the supply chain? How do I work with operations? How do I work with the marketing, email marketing, you know, so on and so forth. So it wasn't like this huge jump, but it was kind of these gradual learnings that we kind of learned along the way. And, and this might be a side topic we can talk about too, but like, burnout is real in terms of like hustle mentality of like you know gary v pushed it forever of like hustle 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 and i did that when i was like 18 19 20 to where i was working all damn day and i eventually got to the point where i just was like miserable and like burnt out and so i've really kind of built kind of a work-life mentality of like not so much like the nine to five mentality but like you know i'll get my computer from eight to five o'clock when my wife gets home and it's like I'm done for the day. Like I'm going to log off, shut the screens off, spend time with my wife, watch shows, play some video games, like do some like everyday human stuff versus work, work, work. Um, And so that was kind of a big learning thing for me too. And I'd be curious what your kind of thoughts on kind of the hustle mentality is too. No, I love this. This is, this is really, really, really cool topic to dive into. Um, It's interesting. You say that Um, I'm kind of in a, you know, my story a little bit, but like, I'm kind of in this limbo where I'm jumping from one thing to the next. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm in that kind of stage of life where I'm, I mean, just working nonstop weekends, nights, like everything. I don't, I don't know if that's, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because uh, I also love what I'm doing. So that yeah. I think it's a huge part of it that I've never experienced before now, to be honest, like working from my story is very different than yours where I went, you know, I went to Purdue left, worked for, worked in finance at like a big manufacturing company for a few years. Then I went to walmart.com and got to, you know, got to be a part of like this e-commerce boom, which was very fulfilling. I mean, it was fulfilling in regards to like learning and being, thinking back to like, I was at walmart.com when they were acquiring Jet and some of these brands. It was, you know, well, probably once in a lifetime opportunity. And yeah. then obviously going to our X bar was life-changing um, just for me to like get, learn about CPG and to meet the folks I met and work with the, all the talented people at RX, like, that has put me on a trajectory that, you know, I would have never thought of, um, to now doing, working on my own thing. Uh, it's like, that's what I've always wanted to do. Um, so for me now, I'm just like fired up about doing it. So I probably work more than I would have ever thought I would be. Um, but to your point, I, to be honest, like me and me and my founder or co-founder, like we feel that all the time. Like there are some weeks where we're just like, whew, between that podcast, trying to like balance both, um, you know, all three things really right now, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's draining. And I, and I sometimes wonder like how long you can run that way before you're just burned out on everything, including like things that are important, like family, friends, and, you know, you got to spend time doing some of that. So I appreciate that. I mean, I think, I think finding a balance is super important to be able to do it long-term. Um, you know, not to bring it back to anything else. I wear something called a whoop. I've never heard of this. This has been eye opening to me just like about getting sleep um, and like not always pushing even like physical fitness, like a hundred percent every day. Like you're just, per, you know, a lot of people say you can do it and some people can, but I think for the most people, like, again, any type of, whether it's work, health, um, anything that you're pushing a hundred percent, seven days a week, 365, most likely you're just, you're going to find hit a point where you're just like, I don't know, either yeah, you don't enjoy it or you can't do it. You can always do more, I guess, but like, it's right. better to enjoy it. And even with like, even if you do get to that point to where you're kind of burnt out, it's like, you know, it's not that you don't love what you do, but it's like, there's got to be a point where it can be a bit overkill to where, oh no, like, you know, what's my next step or, 
So that's why I think it's important to kind of find some work-life balance in there. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's really important. How have you, I'd be curious to know, like from your perspective, you know, being a co-founder of a CPG brand, for example, I I find that I'm trying to balance so many things in a day. Like I used to use this tool that, and we can get to this in a minute too, but one of the things I use is this like planner that you have to like pick the three big things you're going to get done today. And then the rest are like additional things. I was just talking to my co-founder and I was like, I feel like I need like a big 10. Like there's 10 things I like legit need to get done today to move all the needles forward. Um, But how do you do that? Cause like, I'm sure for you that with all these different, you know, parts of the business, like, is there days where like you get to five o'clock and you're like, shit, I didn't get to like five or six really important things. And like, if you really do turn it off, you just like not get it done until the next day. Or like, how do you think about that? Um, yes and no. So like one of my kind of econ friends so yeah. that I've met through like due to see Twitter is Jeff Sheldon. And he's got a product called the analog. And so like, it's kind of like a paper sheet of to-do list versus like your phone, because I've learned like, if I do a to-do list on my phone, I'll check something off. But it's like, I get a notification. I get distracted instantly. Whereas if I've got something that's on a physical, you know, note card or piece of paper that tells me X, Y, Z, I can look at that, physically look at that. I can physically cross it off, physically add notes. And so I've learned that's helped me tremendously. And even with that, you know, typically what I do on like a day-to-day kind of like task sheet, so to say, I'll do like four to five, like things I need to do. And so like my morning blocks, I typically don't do any meetings before 10 a.m. That way I have, you know, my day-to-day, I kind of get up at seven. My wife leaves for, she's a teacher, so she leaves for school about 7.45, 8 o'clock. So like I'm kind of at home with her or whatever. Eight o'clock to nine, I'm at the gym, nine to 9.15, you know, shower, you're ready for the day. And so really from like 9.15 to 10, 10.30, it's like I'm doing stuff that needs to get done ASAP. And then if I have meetings, I have meetings, but then it's like, I just go to that sheet, try to get those four, five tasks done. And if I don't get them done that day of, again, as soon as I get to like four or five o'clock, it's like, I'm going to log off, have what, or, you know, talk with my wife, have supper. And if it's like seven, eight o'clock to where I need, need, need to get something done, I'll give it 30 minutes, 45 minutes to do it. And then I'll just push it to the next day. Um, I typically don't get to that point to where it's five or four or five o'clock. It's like, Oh no, I've got, I got to do this. I usually, honestly, I can't even think the last time I got to that point to where it was the end of the day and I didn't get something done that I need to, that I had to do at night. So I've been, yeah. So I've been really good at kind of just task management, so to say. And I think, again, it kind of goes back to when I was younger with like money management and just getting tasks done and figuring stuff out. So I think time is a huge thing for entrepreneurs to like learn and try to figure out early before it gets to like where it's messy and too late. Yeah, no, no, I, I feel that hundred percent. That's um, what's the tool called that you said you use? Um, analog. Um, I think it's from ugmonk.com. Okay, cool. Or Jeff oh. Sheldon on Twitter. Yeah you, yeah, you can find it pretty easily, but I'll yeah, find it. Ask the links. But you use, yeah, that every, yeah. you use that every day for all your... I do. I do. Um, you know, if I'm on the road traveling for business or whatever, then I typically will just put it on my phone. I have an app called Todoist that I use as well. So if I'm on the go, I just use my phone. But usually when I'm at my home office on my desk. It's like I'm using this analog tool or piece of paper next to me. Got it. Yeah. No, I love that. That's really cool. Um, yeah. 
Well, very good. I mean, that's that's a great conversation. That's one I haven't had out here before um, that I think is really important. Do you tend to also keep everything turned off, you know, for like the weekend? Like, do, are you good about being Monday through Friday and then not Saturday, Sunday? Honestly, yes. Um, you know, when I was younger, you know, 18, 19, whatever, I used to work on weekends. And again, I get points where like fatigue or kind of like, you know, I'm working all the time. And so I've gotten pretty good at like nine to five, like Monday through Friday kind of mentality, but it's like, you know, I own a business. I do stuff in my own terms. And even with that, it's like, I always kind of remember is like, I own this business. I can do what I want within the business and I can do how much time I want on the business. You know, if I want to take a day off today, it's like, I can do my tasks that I need to get done. And you know, I could spend the afternoon doing whatever. Yeah. Um, like during the summers, I'm a big golfer. Um, I love golfing because nice. it gets me outside and stuff like that. So like during the summer, it's like I work really hard in the mornings and sometimes I just won't schedule meetings so I can get a bunch of stuff done. That way in the afternoons, you know, if it's 75, 80 degrees and five mile per winds, I could go have a beautiful day of golfing. And so love that. So it's been kind of like figuring stuff out, figuring out your schedule, time management. So you can kind of do stuff that you like to do instead of working 24 seven. So Saturdays and Sundays, it's like, you know, spend time with my wife, friends, family, watch football, go golfing, you know, just allow yourself to like get away from the business and just like be a human and, you know, enjoy kind of the, you know, your one life. Yeah, no, I think that's super important to your, to your earlier point of like the hustle culture. Yeah. That you can, a whole week, a year can go by if you don't, uh, don't stop and, and smell the roses per se. Right. Yeah. Like even this year, 2021 has just flown. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I feel like the last two years have gone by faster than I ever remember anything going by. So that's, that's true. Yeah, I wonder if some of like, that's like, I know for me, like, and I don't know if you've been this way, like I used to, you know, my mornings used to start a little bit earlier because I had to be on a train by like seven to go into Chicago. In Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, you know, it was a mile walk from the train to the RX office in the office, you know, I usually got there by eight, eight thirty, and then I'm gone by five forty-five, probably is when I left. So like, there was just like, the day was so much longer, but like, I feel like I got less done. Now it's like yeah. the moment I'm up, um, you know, I have a gym in our garage. So I'm just like, it's just like, there's no, I don't have to leave the house to get like everything done normally. Sure. So it's just different. I don't know. Things have changed. And I'm kind of like almost opposite. So like I get up, I go to the gym because it gets me out of the house for a little bit, you know, yeah. kind of maybe a little human interaction at the gym, saying hi to people. And so like, I kind of like that because it gets me out of the house because sure. I've been working from home for, you know, three, four, five years. So it's like, it's kind of nice to go to the house here and there. And my wife jokes about it all the time. Like I'm almost like socially awkward because I don't talk to people in person as much. Like when we go to like out to eat sometimes like i'll have her get my drink or like if you go to through drive through we joke about it all the time like i'd rather have her order than me order and oh, i think that's, that's just kind of like a and i think it's kind of like a socially <laughs> awkward thing just because i'm from home for so long to where it's like i don't have much human like face-to-face -face interaction and i think and it might sound weird but it's like it's one of those things that like you just kind of learn and i'm trying to kind of improve on so to say yeah. i think getting to the gym every day kind of helps overcome that sort of thing makes a ton of sense it is kind of weird you think about it like working from home and like all we do is zoom now yeah. if you don't go out and do anything it is kind of strange like over time what that's going to do um i i feel a huge difference like 
being on zoom calls with a hundred people is the weirdest has been some of the weirdest parts of COVID. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I haven't seen these people in two years. It's just strange. Yeah. And so like when you get to meet people again for the first time or, you know, over a break, it's like, there's almost like a face of like awkwardness of like, Oh, hi. Like, what do we talk about now? Kind of yeah. besides work all the time. So Dude, like small talk. Um, yeah. It's like the awkward small talk. And I think that's for kind of like that socially awkward thing from the whole COVID situation of everybody working from home and, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of the big corporations moving to like a hybrid office type mentality where, you know, three days are work from home and two days are at office. And so I think it's, I think COVID kind of opened up the eyes of like, you know, everybody can work from home, but, I think there's also a degree of like, you almost got to get in office at some point. So you just get some of that human to human interaction. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you want, like if you need, uh, <clears throat> you know, for companies that want to establish a culture, I would say like, is that for you guys at Money Bites? Like, how does that work for you? Are you guys all remote at this point? Yeah. So like, you know, pre COVID we were kind of in this mentality of like, you know, let's, let's put a central location. Let's try to get as many on our office as we can. And then all of a sudden COVID hit and we're like, you know, we might have to switch that up. And so all of our team is very, we're pretty much remote. Like Tyler and I, we're both in Iowa. We're about three hours apart. Um, Jessica, who works on our social and content team, she actually lives about 15 minutes away. So like we're probably the closest between our whole team here. And then we've got four people in our warehouse in North Sioux City, South Dakota. So obviously those guys work every day with each other face to face. Um, and then we've got Sarah, she lives down in Des Moines here in Iowa, or excuse me, Ames here in Iowa. And then we've got, um, Emma who lives up in Chicago. So it's like oh, most God. of our teams remote. Um, a lot of our team have not met each other face to face until recently, you know, we all flew out to Chicago about, you know, uh, probably three, four weeks ago now. And we all met for the first time. We all went out to eat. We had some drinks and we had a really, really good time. And so like that for us was like validation of like, you know, we're a really awesome young core team. We're starting to build that culture. And so it's really good for us just to kind of get everybody one place and just get to know each other a lot deeper and that human human interaction. It's really, really good for us. Yeah. It's weird how sometimes that I feel like that doing that and like making those connections can make working together over zoom a lot easier. Like you just, it's like it's a lot easier. Right. It's like, even now, like if we zoom, it's like, we think of Chicago and we think of like some of the jokes or some of the like funny moments or even embarrassing moments. We always kind of bring them up and it kind of creates that kind of culture. So like, if, you know, listeners here, like have a remote team, like do whatever you can to try to get everybody one place, whether your team's a team of five or a team of 25, it, obviously it's easier said than done, but get everybody one place just to say hi, get to know each other. Even if it's for one night, two days, like what we did, it was huge. And for us, we use credit card points. Like we never paid for, you know, a meal. Oh, we never smart. paid for a flight. We used all of our credit card points. And so eventually, basically it was all free, right? So yeah. that's that's really kind of what we're going to be using our credit cards points for moving forward is like team retreats, um, flying team members to another team member to help, you know, face-to-face. And so it worked out pretty good for us. Love it. No, yeah, that's uh, it's becoming, it's so strange because that was never something people I think thought about. Like culture was just what the culture is depending on where everyone's at. Now it's uh, yeah. a completely virtual thing. Well, that's really cool. So you guys have gone through a few different stages. What was the one question I wanted to ask for you guys specifically, knowing like your timeline, what was like the biggest surprise or challenge, you know, from COVID? 
Because for you guys, it seemed like you guys were very, you guys were very e-com dominant, right? If I don't, if I'm not mistaken, when COVID hit and then yeah, I'm curious we how, were, how you guys worked through that. So like before COVID, we were like 100% D2C. We just started reaching out to retailers, literally. So February, we started in retail, we're about 200-ish locations. Like they were selling oh, really so good in stores. Yeah. So like we were doing really good. And then all of a sudden March, you know, month later, COVID hit, we're like, you know, crap, like, what do we do now? So (laughs) then we shut down for that time. And so really from there, it's like, okay, let's go back to D2C. And really we started back into the retail two months ago. Um, And so now we're probably about 100, 300 ish doors. And really that's between like Foxtrot, you know, in the bigger cities. And then a lot of um, local mom and pop type shops. And then really, you know, like right now, I'd say we're probably 95 D2C and Amazon and 5% retail and probably less than that, to be honest. Like we're kind of flip-flopping the whole thing here in 2020. We have some really big contracts coming into place, really big retailers to where it's probably going to be like 70% retail, 30% D2C and Amazon. And we're not really going to be turning or slowing down the D2C Amazon side of things. Like we have a really big ramp up period. You know, we've grown 100 to 300 plus percent year over year and i think from 2021 to 2022 we'll have probably close to anywhere from 500 to a thousand percent growth like it's just it's almost scary growth but it's like we've got the team we've got the capacity we've got you know the retailers and the connections that we could do it and so we're going to obviously try the best that we can and if we come up short it's still going to be better than what we did this year it's, yeah. it's kind of the thing so it's it's been really really crazy that's wild, man. Um, I know from my experience at RX, it sounds like you guys did something somewhat similar where it did your success with D2C and Amazon and just the growth trajectory you're seeing on both of those, did that help unlock like favorable conversations with retailers? Like I've said that on here a couple of times, like at RX, I mean, us like growing this yeah. enormous B2C, Amazon and B2B business through our own website just unlocked all this power when it came to talking to retailers because we didn't need them. It'd be great if we unlocked more doors with, you know, profitable terms, but at the end of the day, like we had a great business over here. Yeah. And we're the same way. So like, you know, I've with a lot of CPG founders and a lot of them start with retail first versus due to C and they always have troubles kind of getting in. And that's not to say you need due to C revenue or B2B, you know, outside revenue to help you get doors, but it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked to some retailers that are like, oh my God, we saw you on Amazon doing just really good numbers. Like we want you. And then we've talked to some retailers that are like, you know, we don't really care what you did online. We care what you're going to do in our store. Ah. So there's kind of like two different ways about it. Um, but like, even like our social brand awareness, we've gone viral a ton of times where we've done some videos have 20 million views and, and like those kind of videos and virality that we've had have really opened up those connections because if we talk to retail, they're like, oh, I've seen you on social media or I saw your post on XYZ. We've even had Target reach out through our website. Literally the category buyer contacted us through our website, went through our support channel and then moved on to us. So like we've been very fortunate and lucky. Not many brands get that lucky to where category buyers from Target and Walmart are reaching out to us versus the other way around. So we've been yeah. super fortunate on that, but you know, brand awareness, due to see revenue and, and statistics can definitely help you get into stores, whether it's through your own deck, you know, if you're presenting to a store and you say, Hey, we did 500,000 D to C, we have a proof of concept. 
you know, let us go into your store, test us out, expand us from there. It's a lot easier to do that. I can only imagine. And it, what I think is cool about your guys' product too, is do you have any true direct competitors? Like is anyone else doing the exact same thing? No. So like, that's the other, like, really kind of blessing but also kind of challenge is like yeah. we're kind of creating a new category the biggest conversation we get from, from retailers is like what category do we put you in are you a chocolate are you a crackers are you cookies like where do we put you that was my next question yeah and so like that's always been kind of a challenge for us is because it's like where do we want to be where do we go and so we've been testing it out in different retailers of like, you know, one retailer, let's be in the cookies, one retailer, let's be in the crackers, next category, let's be next to the cookies. And so like, we're kind of going through those phases of like, what's selling best where, um, different price points, obviously, you know, if we're in the higher end chocolates, we're next to, you know, Ghirardelli or Brookside chocolate that are selling like really high quality chocolate. And there's, you know, 40 pieces in a bag, whereas we've got 14. So we're trying all these different verticals, there's a whole different kinds of moving pieces. And the tough part about testing that is like different stores, different geography, you know, between the United States, you know, from California to New York, it's like you have different buyers. So it makes it also kind of hard to test it as well. Yeah. And there's even some retailers that are like, you know, put us where you think we'll do good. And if it doesn't sell, so cool, move us to a different part of the store and see how we sell there. Like one store put us in the cookies, wasn't moving that great they moved us to the cracker and we're flying up the shelf wow and vice versa on different stores so it's been really kind of a challenge to figure out where that's suited um which is you know a challenge that is kind of unique to us that not too many other brands kind of do right you have yeah. like arcs bar you know they know where they need to go whereas us it's like we got to figure out where we want to be so to say yeah no it makes sense and it's like because it I'm, I'm thinking about your product and it's so interesting because I also like, when is, I don't know if you guys have done studies on this, when are people mostly eating them? Like what's like the use case that's most, like most common. I'm trying to think of yeah. like where that would sit on a shelf. And honestly, it's kind of, it's widespread. You know, some people will have their steak for supper and then they'll open up a bowl of ice cream and put muddy bites on top. So they kind of still get that kind of like Sunday cone type vibes, but they yeah. put it on top of their, of their ice cream. So we get people that do that. And we got the people that are like, you know, I just need a little pick me up at 3 p.m. and they'll open a bag and, and eat those. And so we have those people as well. And I think that's some of the things that we're kind of looking into now, like we've got a private Facebook group of our community. I think it's like 500 people. And so we kind of use that as kind of like almost like our test group, so to say. And we ask them questions, we ask them surveys and to try to learn deeper about our audience. We can kind of use that as leverage, not only for D2C, but also for retailers in terms of placements, pricings, categories, and so on and so forth. Oh, that's really smart. So just took people who were like core consumers and put them in a private Facebook group. Yeah. So like, you know, obviously with Clavia, you can segment people that have bought three, four or five times. And so like we created those segments, we email them and say, Hey, we're making a private Facebook group. If you want to join, you can hear from our founders. You can help us improve products. You can help us drop new flavors, whatever. And we've quickly grown it up. I think we're at 500, 600 people. And eventually you want to get that to, you know, 5,000, 10,000, because really that's kind of, I don't want to say own channel because obviously Facebook owns it but yeah. it's like it's kind of one of those assets that like it feels like it's kind of your group and so we kind of see it as also like a sales and marketing channel as well you know if we've got 
thousand dedicated fans that have purchased three plus times in a Facebook group. We can post saying, Hey, new flavor just dropped. Go be the first ones to order it before anybody else. And so that's been really big for us. And, and obviously the other piece of that is just any feedback surveys we want to send. It's like we post in there and we can probably get 50 to hundred survey requests back. So that's it's really huge. kind of a great community. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's funny at RX, we got to this weird point where we were like scaling so fast. We tried to do something similar to that. Yeah. It just like didn't get the focus that I think it would have if we were early on, earlier on in our like story. Um, yeah. Because we wanted to do something like that where we would send them, you know, basically flavors that were, we were, you know, testing and working on and let them like try them before they were real flavors. And some of that creative stuff is like the, you know, the, those core consumers at the beginning that are, are passionate fans. It's like yep. invaluable information. 100%. And that kind of goes back to like some of our core values of like being transparent. And so like, if we can have dedicated fans in a private community, show them behind the scenes, it's like, they're going to follow us from day one all the way to day, you know, a thousand when we exit or whatever it might be. And they're going to congratulate us. And, and obviously we wouldn't be here without them. And so it's like, you know, big thank you, so to say. And yeah, we want to treat them best that we can. And, you know, once in a while we'll do free giveaways and stuff like that to say like, you know, thanks for being a part of our community, you know, like this post to win free bite plush toy or win 10 bags, stuff like that. So it's really, really nice. No, I love that. I love that. So you, you've been in business now for what? Oh, three years, basically, right? Uh, yeah. 2018 was kind of the idea, late 2018. And then, you know, Kickstarter was January 2019. And then our online store was November 4th of 2019. So, you know, really, okay. it's really like a two and a half, three, somewhere in there, I guess. Yeah. So through that time, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think like how much you guys have scaled now getting into retail in 2022. You've grown a team, gone through COVID. If you had to put, you know, your finger on one thing as like the biggest surprise before you started the CPG brand, what would it, what would it be for people listening? Oh man. Um, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm kind of stumbling cause there's like, you know, we overcome COVID. That was a big thing for not only local businesses, you know, like when I was in two line ago, you could see so many businesses were hurting because of COVID still. And it's like, it's sad to see that. But like for us, somehow, you know, again, through that community building that we built from day one, we were able to get support through those few months, which was great for us. Um, but, you know, refrain or could you go over the question again? Yeah, sure. No, no, it's like, you know, I think maybe give you a, an idea or let you think for a second. When I, uh, at RX, people ask about like, I was there for a little over four years, which is hard to believe. Um, and I always say like, it's crazy in the startup world. Like I can remember back to almost honestly, every single month since I was there and like what big thing was going on. Like there was just that much that happens in the startup world that like, sure. you know, it's almost like ingrained in your brain. Like I remember the month we, you know, moved into a new office when we went through a layoff, when we had a, you know, a recall, when COVID was announced, like I can just remember where we were and what was going on and what work we were working on. Um, I remember getting yeah. into Costco, some of these like cool moments that like, you know, happened once. And if someone asked me like what the most, what was like, the, I guess, what was the biggest surprise or what was the, you know, cause when you started this brand, like knowing the, the endeavors you had done before, like this is so different. It's still entrepreneurial, but it's different. Um, right. Has there been anything that was like a holy shit moment? Like I, if I would have known this was going to be something I had to overcome by starting this, maybe I wouldn't have even done this type of thing. 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I think the biggest thing for us that was like kind of like a holy shit moment was like retailers reaching out to us. You know, from kind of day one, we thought we we're like we had to go like door to door, like salesman, like tight vibes where we got to go to this high V here in the Midwest. We got to go to this high V. We got to go to Costco. Like we got to go literally door to door. You know, I didn't know about distributors and brokers and like, that's a whole different topic, which I'm sure, you know, obviously it's like, yeah. it's hard to find the right one, but like for us, just because of social media that has really grown, I think significantly over the last two years because of COVID, like with TikTok, especially like we've gone viral on those platforms to where category buyers from Target, Walmart, Costco, you know, the list goes on and on, have literally reached out to us. Whereas like, we always thought we had to go door to door and sell to them. Like now we can have access to 20,000 plus stores if we wanted to. We just have to, you know, obviously get the numbers to work, logistics and supply chain to work out. And we could be in, you know, 20,000 locations next year. And that's obviously our big goal right now is we're going to go from, I'd say by the end of the year, probably 300 locations to be saved to probably, 10, 15, 20,000 locations next year. So like, it's really kind of a big jump. And that's all because of like social media, to be honest, and creating that brand awareness and letting people come to us on our wholesale forms on our websites, um, you know, meetings and meetings and phone calls with category buyers. So that's been like, you know, I think I remember when Target reached out to us, it was like, holy shit, like yeah. this girl from Target, the category main buyer there, HQ reached out to us. It's like, we could go on all the targets if we wanted to. We just have to get everything to work right and we can do it. Yeah. No, that's crazy. And you guys are in a powerful position. And honestly, for everyone listening, if, you know, interested in starting something, in my opinion, I've had a lot of people on here. You guys have a story and a way of doing it that was really smart. And it was, it has a lot of similarities, in my opinion, to the way RX kind of went through their stages of life. Um, scaling it online first and getting a profitable base and then having the leverage to then go to retail is if you can do that, you're patient enough to wait for the right yeah. opportunities. Um, you know, you know, we turned down some of those big retailers multiple times because pricing right. wasn't right or profitability wasn't right. We waited and made it better and improved and then came back. So no, that's really cool. Great answer. Yeah. And I think even to add on that really quick too, it's like, you know, we talked with Walmart a year ago and that was pre COVID and we just didn't have the capacity to do it. And I was like COVID mm -hmm. hit. And like, we just started the Walmart conversations a little bit again now so it's like, even if something doesn't work now with the retailer for anybody listening or whatever, that's not to say that it won't work from six months to a year now. Like keep those conversations going, keep checking in, keep giving them updates on your business. Like if now doesn't make sense, six months doesn't make sense. Like do a six month check-in and say, hey, like I just want to check in. Like now is still not the best time, but I just want to let you know on what we're doing to help improve that. And then when time is ready, they're like, oh my God, like, I'm so happy your progress is gone. Like, let's do this. And so it really kind of opens up those gates, just keep that open line communication. Yeah, no, love that. Great advice for everyone listening. Um, I know we're getting close to the end of time. So the last couple of questions I love asking every founder that comes on here. The first one you kind of already answered, but I'll let you either rephrase it or if there's anything else that you'd add. It's really around, you know, thinking about, you know, business goals, personal goals, and then getting daily tasks complete what tools do you use to get shit done? And I always say like, is it pen and paper? Is it an app? You kind of already answered yeah. that with the, with the, the pen and paper idea or I guess tool you use, but is there anything else yep. you use to, to, to plan and get things done? Yeah. So analog is the first one. And then I also use Todoist. It's literally Todoist. Um, and so, yep. I use that both on my desktop and my phone. 
And then, you know, obviously I use notes on Apple just to certain meetings. And then I can transfer that into a Google Doc or Notion. Um, otherwise, obviously I use Spotify, listen to music. Notion good for just kind of note taking and team management a little bit. And that's really kind of my core like daily things. And then obviously Slack for communication. Slack's huge. I'm a big, big, big Slack fan. Love it. Um, Absolutely. Second to last one is basically source of knowledge. So everyone listening, do you have any books, podcasts, just any sources of knowledge that have been impactful for you that you'd like to share with everybody? <laughs> Honestly, like I've been trying to get into reading books, but I just can't. Like I'll read five pages and my mind's thinking about something else. I just can't focus on a book. Um, so I don't have any books to be honest. I'm not a That's book fair. reader. I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying to get into audiobooks. I was gonna say, have you tried audiobooks? That's what I usually do. I used, I do yeah. audiobooks while I do my cardio. Funny enough. Um, so, and that's the thing, like I tried to at gyms and it's like, I'm listening to a book, trying to get amped up, trying to pump some iron, you know, it's like, I can't get yeah, fired yeah, up, so yeah, to say. So yeah, like, then I tough. switch to music. And then if I'm working day to day, it's like, I'm trying to listen to a podcast while doing typing emails. And it's like, I can't focus on both of those. And so I don't listen to the podcast when I'm working either. So it's like, I kind of have like a weird timing. If I want to listen to a podcast, it's usually if I'm driving on the road to the airport or something or the airport. Um, and that's kind of it. So I'm trying yeah. to learn, I'm trying to like get more into audiobooks just to kind of get that knowledge going. Cause I used to be so good at like constantly doing like improvement on myself, my brain and so on and so forth. And I've gotten really bad at it to where I want to work that back in my schedule here. That's, it's really, it's a, no, that's fair. I, if I did, I do like morning lunges for my cardio, like body weight lunges every, I have to be doing it forever. And so it's just like 20 minutes a day that I have an audiobook going. And I feel like I probably don't absorb it as well if I, as if I would have yeah. read it, but like, I just don't have, to, I feel like I've not made time to read. Um, so I, I totally have empathy for you there on that one. I have to find like, I always hate when they have the, um, when, when it's not the author reading it, when you have like another person reading it, it's always, oh, sure. that's the worst. Yeah. But I did just finish reading, um, shoe dog, the like memoir about Phil Knight, the guy that started Nike. That was oh, that's yeah, honestly yeah. my new favorite book. I, it was so interesting. Like, you know, I'm wearing it now. I've, I've worn Nike like forever and didn't know a thing about it to like hear all the crazy shit they had to go through to even be remotely successful. Uh, they should have died like three times. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, if you're, gonna, if you I being an entrepreneur, you would, you would love that one. That one's actually really cool. He goes like the chapters are basically like every year from the year he thought of it through him selling it and or really going public, I guess. He didn't really sell sure. it. Uh, um, and so it's, it's cool. It's like year by year, chapter by chapter. So it's cool. Very yeah, cool book. I have to check it out. You love that one. Um, most important question and last question, how can people follow along with your journey and how can people follow along and try Muddy Bites? Um, obviously you can go to muddybites.com or follow us on any social channel at Muddy Bites. And then, you know, if you want to follow me personally, you can just check me out at Jared Stepfest on Twitter and Jared is spelled J-A-R-O-D. Um, so, and I do share, I'm trying to kind of like, I don't want to say build in public, but I'm trying to kind of, you know, share some of my learnings and stuff like that too. So yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Love it. Well, Jared, thank you so much for the time, man. This was a great conversation. Loved it. And Absolutely. Uh, we'll share all these links and everything with the listeners and uh, hope you have a good one, man. Thanks for taking the time. Sounds good. Thanks, Shane. Awesome. Thanks, Jared.